CJ Sabog, number 15. The speed of Pico, he's in, score, Sabog, for another union. This is the Philly Soccer Show. I'm KOW News Radio's Greg Willandini with Philly Soccer Page writer Mike Cervetio. Andrew Erickson from the Columbus Dispatch talks to us about the crew's ownership situation and also previews the union's match against the crew. On the line with us is uh, Andrew Erickson from the uh, Columbus Dispatch, uh, covers the uh, Columbus crew. We were going to preview Philadelphia Union and crew match. It's going to happen on Wednesday. We'll probably get to that, but uh, some breaking news involving the ownership uh, situation in Columbus and the possible move and all those things that are kind of going on. So I was just going to kind of quickly give you the floor and you can tell us uh, what, what's happening a lot <laughs> in, in, uh, today. Yeah, so just to kind of give you a, a summary in the last couple of months, back in March, um, the city attorney, Zach Klein, and Ohio Attorney General, Mike DeWine, um, they filed a lawsuit against Freecourt Sports Ventures, which owns the crew, as well as MLS, um, arguing that they were in violation of uh, Ohio Revised Code 9.67, which is also known as the Modell Law. Um, and basically, this law, which was passed in 1996, um, after Art Modell, who owned the Browns at the time, moved the team to Baltimore, says that if you play in a tax-supported facility or receive um, another type of public benefit, that you um, you have to provide six months' notice, as well as give locals the opportunity to purchase the team before moving. Um, you know, there were a bunch of motions flying back and forth in this case over the last couple months. You had PSV and MLS, you know, make a motion to dismiss. They wanted to delay discovery until a judge ruled on the motion to dismiss. The city wanted to delay the case six months to give these local investors, um, you know, one of whom had been presented in NDA, um, an, an opportunity to, to look at the books of the team in the league and to make a, a genuine offer. Um, and so, you know, you have all these people, as is the case with any anything that, you know, requires intelligence of people, uh, you have all these people flying back and forth on Twitter with their opinions. And until a judge weighed in, it, it was really hard to say, you know, where this case was going. And I, I think that still is the case today, but you at least have word from the judge on, on kind of what the timeline of the case will be. Um, and so this, the judge today, um, and I, the irony of it is that Mike DeWine is, is running for governor and today was primary day. So kind of a, a busy day for him, but um, the judge basically is delaying the case 90 days. He's delaying discovery 90 days. Um, and what that kind of allows for is um, any prospective purchaser is going to be able to take a look at um, information that the two parties are going to agree on. Um, and in theory would allow for an offer um, to purchase the team. I don't know in what capacity that will take place, but this 90 day period would in theory allow for that. And I think um, you, you won't see a, a ruling on whether the law is constitutional or anything like that in this 90 day period. So, so it, it's a, a lot more wait and see. Um, but I think you, you get a better sense of, you know, what course this, this case is taking at this point. What, is, what has the reaction been from the crew fans in the, the short period since this has been announced? And it's been about, I guess about 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's insane. I, I think, I think they were relatively pleased. And if you saw the state's, statements from um, the city attorney and the state attorney general. I think they're pleased that, you know, these prospective purchasers and, or investors will be given um, the time to kind of look things over and, and to be able to make an offer. Um, you know, will those offers be accepted? You know, will the 
efforts in Austin be delayed or derailed? I, I don't know. I, I think you could still work toward a solution, a stadium solution in Austin uh, simultaneously with this. So in some ways, it kind of complicates things further. But I think if you're the average crew fan, you're probably thinking, okay, well, there's at least a window now where somebody, if, if they're given an opportunity to look at the books, can make a proper valuation for the team and, and put together a, a bid package. Um, whether that happens, I think, is to be determined, but there's at least a, a window to do that now. So I think some folks are, are relatively pleased with that. So going kind of little ways back when Anthony Precourt first came onto the scene, was there any indication when he came in that he was anything less than happy with Columbus as a city and, you know, being a the Columbus groaner in Columbus, was there any sort of kind of, as he came in, was there any kind of hints of any of this kind of in the offing? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, you go back to his original press conference and he kind of made mention that he was committed to Columbus, excited about it. You go back to the end of 2014 into 2015 with the rebrand. Um, seemed like there was some excitement. They, they touted the you know, the year over year attendance growth in the first couple of years that they were the ownership group. So I think, I think you kind of point to that as, you know, it seemed like it started on the high note. Um, you know, I think some people were made uneasy um, at the end of, I believe it's the end of 2016 when they hired a um, Barrett sports group to conduct a stadium site, you know, survey to, to see if there was interest for that. I think some people were a little uneasy with that. Um, you know, I, I think it, I think it kind of unfolded over the last couple of years and, and Anthony Precourt's telling, you know, he gave these business leaders an opportunity to, um, you know, to, to basically to keep the team in Columbus and, you know, that he wasn't given an indication that, 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 um, you know, that happened in a proper way. So, you know, I, I think it kind of unfolded over time and, and certainly, um, certainly it was still a bombshell in October, but I think, um, maybe there wasn't that same enthusiasm that there was uh, to start his his ownership period in 2013. What a, what has it been like around the team and the fans this year? Um, it seems like there's been a pretty good swelling of support inside of MLS with the Save the Crew movement. Um, do you see it affecting anything on the field? Do you see it affecting much in the fan base as a as on a whole? The fan base, certainly. Um, and I, I think the soccer has been a little bit of a, a respite for the fans, you know, yeah. like between all these motions flying around and, you know, the, the machinations in Austin and, and, you know, resolutions passing down there. And, and, and it's, you know, I think that a lot of that has been frustrating for the fan base, but, you know, the fact that there still is a, a soccer team playing on the field, I think has been a nice thing for the fan base. Um, and it almost has come as surprise. Oh, you know, there's actually a soccer game this Saturday, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, I think for the players and discussing it with them, a lot of times their reaction is, you know, we know just as much as you guys know that, you know, they haven't been given an indication one way or another where they'll be playing next year because a decision hasn't been made yet. And so I think it's kind of a tough limbo spot for them. But Greg Berhalter has done a pretty good job of insulating them and, um, you know, not letting it become a distraction because it could become a huge distraction if it was something they discussed every day, if, if it was kind of a woe is me attitude or you know, hey guys, it doesn't really matter what we do this year because no team has faced this in the history of Major League Soccer. Um, you could let it get to you, but they haven't. Um, you know, and toward the end of the playoff run that they had last season, I think players talked about how it, it they were able to to kind of rally around it. That 
you know, nobody believed in the team and, you know, nobody expected them to win because of the circumstances, but they were able to, you know, make it within a goal of, of the MLS cup final. So um, I think, I think they were initially, you know, energized by it. I think now they're um, not focused on it and it'll be interesting to see whether that holds over the next few months, but that certainly is their attitude so far. And this kind of, as much as I've read about this issue, and obviously I don't know, probably a 10th of what you, you know, you're, you're living it every day, but it also seems like, you know, Precor is not doing a very good job keeping Austin happy either. There's been, you know, some columns written down there about, you know, what's going on, what's going on in Columbus. When's this team, is there going to be a move? It just seems like he's just kind of has these plates spinning. He's not doing a very good job in either city of keeping it going. Yeah, you know, and I, I don't pretend to know the first thing about relocating a team. So, you know, like, I, I don't, you know, it's not for really me to judge one way or another whether, you know, they're successful or unsuccessful in that capacity. I, I will say that um, they, they, they had, they've had some pushback in Austin. They initially mm-hmm. wanted um, a couple parkland sites. One was right on the water, just uh, just south of downtown. There was this park called Butler Shores. You know, there was some opposition to parkland being used for a stadium, so they moved on to Guerrero Park. There, were, there was a protest there, so now they've moved on to a site, you know, uh, miles north of downtown Austin um, that there's been a little bit less opposition to, um, but they still have to get city council approval. They still have to be able to get, you know, enough money for a stadium loan. Um, they still have to find a temporary site. And the athletic director at, at the University of Texas initially said, you know, we don't know how, how much val- how much value this holds for us. Um so I, I think they still have a lot to work out down there, and and their goal is to have something in place by the end of June, um, because City Council in Austin meets twice, I think, the June fourteenth and June twenty eighth, and then they break until August. Um, and from the pre court sports ventures perspective, you know, if you're trying to put a team on the field in March twenty nineteen, you know, you really have to have something done by the end of summer um, to start that move process. So it is, it is kind of a tricky situation. I, I still think there's, you know, at least a decent chance it gets done. Um, I, I'm hesitant to put percentages on anything as, as I have been throughout this process, just because of how unique and, and unusual it is. But, um, you know, there was some pushback initially. I think there's less with this site, but it'll be interesting to see how it plays out and what kind of support they can get moving forward. Well, like you said, there's been a little bit of respite for the fans in terms of the fact they're actually soccer games occasionally. Um, right, let's, right. Let, let's let's talk about one of those soccer games because you have Philadelphia coming to Columbus tomorrow. Um, the two teams have already played once this season. It was kind of a dour nil-nil game here in Philadelphia early in the season. Um, I was actually pretty impressed with the way that Columbus came in and set up that game um, and, and made it kind of, of a mucky game um, and were probably pretty happy to come out with a point. You're kind of coming in to this game with Philadelphia reeling a little bit from a, a pretty harsh loss on, on Saturday. You have the court ruling today. What do you think it's going to be like in Columbus tomorrow? You know, I think I think attendance has been, you know, and you've seen the numbers, have, has been not great to start the season. Um, and I've, I've written at length about, you know, what relocation situations do to a fan base. And obviously, you know what, March weather in the Midwest and the Northeast hmm. is like it's you yeah, know it's not they do. great and they, they do oh, yeah, yeah right oh, they've yeah. played, you know, played three March home games for the first time in, in franchise history and um, I believe only have one home game in, in July and August um, you know so the attendance numbers haven't been great to start the season I think it'll be fine um, fine but not great uh, to, 
tomorrow, um, you know, and you're talking about a midweek game when a lot of schools still haven't let out. But I, I think the crew has been fairly confident over the last couple seasons in playing at home. They know they have a team. They Certainly they're not saying this, but they know they have a team in Philadelphia that has not performed particularly well on the road um, and has certainly not scored um, many goals on the road. So I think it's okay to say it out loud. We all yeah, know it we, here. I mean, <laughs> I th- I'm pretty sure even the guys on the team know it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and this is a crew defense that struggled. They, they put themselves in a lot of vulnerable spots because they like to push the fullbacks up high. Um, mm-hmm. But they've been a little bit better on defense to start this year. I think you still have questions in um, whether this team's going to be able to score goals at the same rate. Jossie Zardes has, has scored a few goals, but to lose Justin Merrim and Ola Kamara, that's 31 of your 53 goals gone off the roster. Mm-hmm. So I think they're still trying to – they can create chances, but I think they're still – figuring out ways to finish those chances off and, and whether they can do that on, on a consistent basis, I think is a, is a serious question. Um, but at least early on in the season, the defense has been stronger. So, you know, I, I think is, and this is the case with any soccer game, but as long as the crew scores first, um, I think they, they feel pretty confident. This is one they can win, but you know, crazier things have happened on the soccer field. Um, what do you rate? Uh, Greg Berhalter? I mean, he's a guy, I, I think he's kind of unheralded in the league a little bit. I think he's one of the, better younger coaches uh out there and i think he does he's done some really good things with the crew and the crew are in kind of a similar situation as you and not you know they're not a big spending team they don't you know or anything like that but they were able, they're able to, it seems like to get the most out of the guys they got where you're but you you see him day in day out and game in and game out where, where do you think he kind of rates right now on mls yeah you know i, I think he's um you know, he certainly thinks about the game a lot. And, uh, you know, last, I go back to last year, um, you know, in 2016, they had the second worst record in the Eastern conference and kind of decided coming into the 2017 season that they needed to be a little bit less predictable. Teams knew they were going to play out of the back a lot. They were going to play that four, two, three, one that, um, you know, didn't do a lot to mitigate risk and, and some of the burden placed on the center backs and the goalkeeper. Um, and so to try to bring that goal total against down, um, they brought out a uh, three, I'm trying to think, a four, well, basically they, they tried a three center back formation that they used a lot when Federico Higuain was, was injured. They used a lot in, you know, games where they wanted to keep teams off the scoreboard. And I think it did make them a little bit less predictable. Um, there, it was a challenge in a way because, um, you know, because they were, they were having to learn two formations essentially at the same time. And you're bringing in a lot of new players. So they didn't really hit their stride until late in the season. Um, but I, I think it, it, it made them um, a little bit less predictable. And I think you kind of have to be crafty in certain ways when, when the budget's a little bit lower, um, when you don't have the same resources available to you as other teams. And I think he's, you know, for, for the most part, done a pretty good job of that. They made the MLS cup final in 2015, um, last year, they were within a goal of, of making the MLS Cup final again, have made the playoffs three of four years that he's been the coach there. So I think they've done a pretty good job. Um, obviously, they don't have some of the quality up top that some of the other teams in the league do. But, you know, when you found a, a formula like, you know, Federico Higuain and, you know, you feel that that works, I, I think they've stuck with it pretty well. 
I think some of the the words coming out of your mouth are, are Greek to us in Philadelphia, um, and I I kind of want to ask you about Philadelphia as as a person that doesn't cover the team as closely as we do here because I, I do think Philadelphia and Columbus kind of are in that similar situation where we're they're they're teams that are not going to spend like Toronto or Atlanta or, or or a couple of the other teams to hear. Burhalter going to Burhalter going to a, a three back system for part of last year to being a little bit crafty with formations. It, I think it would be so important for Philadelphia Union fans to see something similar happen here in Philadelphia because it seems like this team has been stuck in this rigid four two three one system for two seasons now. Um, they backed into the playoffs in twenty sixteen. They had a poor season last year. It's a pretty poor start this year. What what is the view around the the league? Do you think of where this Philadelphia Union franchise is nine years into our club? You know, yeah, I don't know, and and you know, like you mentioned, I, I don't cover that team on a specific basis, but I, I think I go back to 2016 with the crew when they had you know one of their worst years in, in franchise history, and in a, in a case of a low budget team, you really need your TAM level players and your. Um, you know, your, 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 uh, designated players on the roster performing well and, and also being on the field. You know, I, I look at like Gaston Saro, uh, tore a ligament in his knee and was out for much of the year. Um, Kai Kamara and Federico Higuain had that spat over the, the penalty kick. That one, you know, was made dead spin in pretty much every <laughs> sports blog around the world. Um, they ended up trading Kai Kamara and Federico Higuain had a hernia injury and, um, you know, Michael Parkhurst that year had kind of a down year and, you know, some of their top end players really either didn't play well or weren't on the field. And it, it you know, the crew really struggled as a result. And so, you know, I, I look at, I mean, just going through the stats and seeing how David Akam has done the first two and a half months, like that's a guy, if you're the union that you really need performing well, um, because if you don't, and you know, you're, you're, again, you're a team that's not spending a ton of money. Um, you need your your higher level players, um, you know, playing up to their peak performance. So, I, I think you know, if, when you compare a team like Philly to a Toronto or, or one of those higher end teams, like they their mid level player is so much higher that um, you know when, when a guy's not maybe having his best night, you don't notice it as much. But on a team like the Crew or um, or Philly, like when the top when the top end guys aren't performing at their top level, I, I, I do think it's it's noticeable pretty much right away. Well said, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Andrew, I want to thank you so much for hopping on today with, on probably the busiest day you've had this season, uh, and very much thank you for breaking down this complicated issue that's going on in Columbus around the ownership and the possible move and all that. It's it's something that I think a lot of MLS fans have, have been watching. Mm-hmm closely and uh thank you for kind of really kind of condensing it for some for us and for our listeners and uh uh if, if people out there want to check out your your work where can they find you where can they find you on twitter and things like that yeah you can check out we have a you know the crew cuts blog on the, the dispatch website and you can follow me on twitter at a erickson cd all right uh thank you so much for hopping on again and uh you know good luck uh kind of plowing through all this legal stuff yeah indeed good luck indeed <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yeah, as I've told a lot of people, I don't have a law degree. But we're trying. <laughs> but you're getting closer. <laughs> yeah, you learn right. stuff on the fly sometimes. All right, thank, that's right. Thanks a lot. Another.
road game for the union. Yeah, road, you could call road games. It. We love road games. We do. The union love road games. It's been, it's been almost, I think it's been 361 days since the Philadelphia Union last won a road game in MLS. Uh, Matt DeGeorge, Matt DeGeorge and uh, Joe Tanzi, they seem to be like on a stats war on Twitter. They always kind of... I don't, don't want to out those guys, but they're they're nerds. <laughs> well, um, sure. And but, neither, neither of them actually listen to this podcast, so I'm not worried no, about I, any I, retribution. Not, yeah. uh, only, only when they're on it do they, do they <laughs> yeah, listen I'm to I'm not them. even sure that, but... but um, <laughs> and uh, the last 10 road wins oh, man. include a victory on the road against Chivas, yeah, which that. has not been a team since 2014. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I'm at a, I, you know, here we are again, another day. And I said it last week. I, I said it was nice, nice that they beat DC. They had to beat DC. They had to score goals, but I didn't think that was a harbinger of anything good. No. I, I didn't think that really meant much. DC's not a good team. They don't play well here. Um, and they didn't play well here, and the Union still kind of struggled to beat them. Yeah, and and then they, you know, and then they have to pack it up, go on the road for three games, and the first game now. Toronto's record is not any indication what kind of team they are currently. I mean, they they had their commitments to uh, the Concacaf Champions League and all of that. They were in the final. Yeah, you know. and I think we talked about this last week. You you go to the, the game in Toronto, and you're you're not expecting that to be the place on this road trip where you get points, right? But what you do expect is a more competitive effort than what the Union put out. I think outside of that that chance from Bedoya in the first half where he heads off the bar, mm-hmm. I can't point to another good scoring chance in the game. And no. s- especially after you know Toronto goes up once one and then two. And you think there might be a little bit of a pushback, and there was it just never came. Um, CJ Sapong and David Akam were not in that game. No, you can't convince me of that that no. they played in that game. They they weren't. I don't know what to do about Akam. I mean, CJ, we've kind of seen this before. CJ kind of comes and goes. I talked about it last week. You kind of have the kind of the three stages of CJ. It's like where he's banging in goals and knocking defenders over. Then he's kind of not scoring, but he's still involved. Then he's kind of not there at all, you know. So that's kind of the three stages of CJ Sapong. I don't, I don't have an answer for David Akam. He's apart from good chunks of the first game. I he can you tell me what he's contributed? No, honestly, you can't. It's a lot of lost dribbles. It's a lot of time hanging out on the sideline. Um, his his. Poor play is indefensible, but I will say that I think he'll be better if you finally get Fabinho behind him again mm-hmm. because the fact that Ray Gaddis offers you absolutely nothing going up the left flank. Um, I thought Matt Real did a little bit better in that category, um, but I think him having to go one-on-two pretty continuously mm-hmm. does not help him. Now, if you want to say that Jim Curtin should be doing something to get him to not be one-on-two, whether it's let him play the right flank for a little while. I mean, the guy's a right-footed player. He can he right. can attack down the right side. Even if you're just swapping for 15 minutes at the end of a half, just to get the guy involved in the game. I mean, well, we know we're not going to switch to a two-striker set and <laughs> let him play off Sapong. That's just that's, that's an happen. unrealistic expectation of the Philadelphia Union because it's been guaranteed to us by Ernie Stewart and Jim Curtin that the 18 members of the game day roster are not capable of understanding two different separate formations during the course of a 36-game season. Anyway, 
but uh, I, I like what you're saying, and it goes to my point that th- this whole we're pushing everything up the right side. They've done that the last two games. Everything goes up the right. You, you basically you're playing with three, four, right, three or four right sided midfielders with with Dutch Cal who drifts to the right, Bedoya who's naturally drifts to the right, and uh, whoever the right midfielder actually happens to be, and, if it's Elsino or and, if it's right, right, and and uh, Keegan who's you and know Keegan who's going to push who, up from who the back, pl- who could play almost like a wing back sometimes, who's going to push up. So everything follows through the right. What's the next step after that? Okay, this is where we're designing that we're going to attack the right side to do X. What is X? Right, and, it, and it's unfortunately, it's been flinging crosses at CJ Sapong in a hopeful manner. There's, yeah. there's, there's no other game plan once you get in there. You know, I think <laughs> I, I watched the the Borchardt goal against DC a couple of times, and that play is never duplicated. And the ball pings around a little bit, and mm-hmm. it ends up with uh, ends on Paco's foot, kind of on the the corner of the box, and he just plays like a little six yard ball in All behind right. the DC defense. Where is that ball ever? No, it, besides right. that, that it time, was, it was a good moment of cycling the ball around offensively, getting the DC defense to move and creating a hole. Where exactly? That's that. That's the exception. That's not the rule, right? And so I want to know what X is. And my problem is if X isn't X could be whatever, but if X isn't say push everything to the right, drag offense uh, uh, the other team's defenders, kind of bunch them up to get a favorable one-on-one situation for David to come, where you could slip in the ball and he could use the speed into the box. That's not happening. That's right. obviously not a thing that's going to happen. That has happened yet. And I'm, I'm with you. It, it's like you got to, you know, the player's responsible for his play. He's got to kind of figure it out and step up. But the the scheme right now is doing nothing to help David Akam. Right. And if and if your plan is to routinely tack down the right, I don't think that there would be too many people that are going to argue with me and say that David Akam is a, is a uh, more is a stronger winger than Fafa Paco or El Senio. I think if you look at his pedigree over the last couple of seasons, and especially coming off of a career year last year. No, I, so I, why yeah. not switch him over to the right for a little while? Get the guy involved in the game. Yeah, they have to. They have to figure out a way, whatever that way is, to get him in the game. Because he's contributed nothing. What was the last game he had zero touches in the box? And that's, I mean, that's a minimal amount of touches he's getting in the game overall. And nothing was in, nothing was in the box. He's supposed to be your best or second best offensive player, goal scorer, and he's not getting in positions, and you're not getting him into positions. Um, it, it's it's a problem, and you know they get hit with another counterattack goal, and I, I think it's time. And we talked about it last week that you you kind of look you got to look long and hard to think about what's the risk reward with sitting Harris. Not so much about his play, although his play has not been spectacular. I think he's playing a different role this year. I don't know how comfortable he is. He was much more the fulcrum last year than he is this year. He's much more a playmaker. Now he's kind of the guy that gets the ball to the playmaker. Um, And if he's not doing that and he's not a defender, I mean, he's still a very good passer. He might be the best passer on the team, him, him and Dutch Gall. I mean, it's... Yeah, I still haven't seen enough Dutch go. But, I mean, he, he, he's probably the best passer that you got. But 
at some point you got to help these kids out that you have playing defense for you because he's a turnstile at defense. Right. You know, and I, I, I suggested it going into the game in Toronto where, you know, and you talk about a counterattack goal. I, I kind of assumed that Toronto would see more of the ball in that game than mm-hmm. the Union, and they did. I think they, they had 60 yeah, or so I percent think of those, 58% or so. In that situation, why is it not better to have a guy like Warren Craval who can clean up the mess in front right, of your defense? Right, and it's another situation where Austin Trussi jumped the gun, pulled himself out of position, but if he has that guy in front of him, he's not, he's less likely to do that. Or he has a guy that will cover for him when he does that. Right. Because Harris is not going to track that run. No, no. Oh, no. That's no. not what Harris does. That's, well, that's exactly. I mean, that's not happening. Where somebody that could read the play where if Austin, and they want him to be aggressive. This is what Jim has said. They want these guys to be aggressive. They want these guys, because they're athletic and they're, they're quick and they're strong, to jump in and you know be forward-thinking in that regard. Then yeah, you need somebody that can cover because if not, you're going to get hit with the same goal over over again, which I have in the last two weeks. Yeah. Um. So I I, I don't know what the game plan was last week. I, I know it was, wasn't likely they were going to walk it out with any points. It was not likely. But is the sin? Is there a sin sitting deep going to Toronto? Jim no. said it. The best you know, the best roster that's ever been created in an MLS. You know. One of the most opportunistic strikers that's ever played on on their team is there a sin in dropping back, playing defensively, bunkering in a little bit, and crazier things have happened. You could get a nil nil. You can nick a goal on a on a quick counter and just smother a game because they want to. This whole thing they want to play the same at home on the road as they do at home. I don't think. The, I don't the, think they have the talent to do it. No, they, they, I don't think they do. I don't even think most of the time they have the talent to play this press all the time that they want to play at home, let alone on the road. So I, I don't understand. It's, it wouldn't be a sign of weakness if they go up there and played a more defensive game. I mean, hell, it's not a sign of weakness even if you go into Columbus tomorrow and play no, that game. no. No, it's not a sign of weakness if you go to a poor team like Montreal on Saturday and play that game, because you do not win games on the road as the Philadelphia Union. They no, don't, you don't do it. You don't. And so what they have been doing does not work. Right. <laughs> so let's try so, something so, else. Why not try something else? Come so, on. So we're back. So we're back to this then, aren't we? Back to. I feel like we're always back to. We something. are back. To, it, it, it is, Jeez. and this. I don't know what's good. Something's got to give at some point. I don't know what it is because I've been ranting about this, I feel like, now for a year and a half, almost two years, that at some point, you know, performances have to matter. Results have to matter. This, you know, they're lucky DC is in this conference and Toronto had the start that they had because of their, you know, ancillary issues or they might very well be at the bottom of the conference right now. Yeah. And, you know, based on play, they. They might deserve to be there. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I, 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 for sure. And Jim has hinted at often on rotating players on this road trip. And uh, his presser today he said that he doesn't expect much rotation for tomorrow, which is though. crazy. Which is crazy. I mean, honestly, you got going back to a comments of punk. You got nothing out of them nothing. on Saturday. You got absolutely nothing out of him. I can't remember meaningful touch either of those guys. And had this, in that this game. is, I think, part of the the problem around the Philadelphia Union locker room too is that there are no repercussions for a poor game. None. 
And, and you know, the it, only player, Keegan Rosenberry, the only player that has had <laughs> suffered anything over the last year and a half for any kind of poor play has been Keegan. I, I think you, you can maybe make an argument that Fabian Herbers has this year. Well, yeah, yeah, because he played the first three games and then has disappeared off the face of the that's, earth. That's yeah. Now he's like on the witness protection program because he yeah. can't make the eighteen all of a sudden, yeah. which. I, which is fine. I don't. I don't I mean, know he didn't play, on merit he, that he deserves it. He didn't play great. He may still be. I mean, he's coming back from injury. He may still be nursing something. We don't know. But at this point, the mix of guys you have currently, the eighteen you've been throwing out there currently, it's not giving you anything. Yeah. Well, and and the other problem is too that they've done such a poor job scouting that they don't have another forward that they can really bring in and play in the system. No. We know that Jay Simpson doesn't work as a lone striker. I think we know that. I'm not sure if we actually know that. But Again, it seems like it doesn't work. Based on what little data we have, it's yeah. not looking great. Maybe it's worth another try, though. Maybe it's worth a try to see him for sixty minutes instead of fifteen minutes of garbage time. What's what? Is there any harm in it? No. I mean, no. maybe the, maybe the guy might be hungry. Is there any harm starting Corey Burke over CJ? No, I think. Or, or, I mean, or, I think Corey Burke looks really raw when you put him out there. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that translates to sixty minutes where he might get two yellow cards or <laughs> right, might yeah. do something crazy or uh, no. He's he's. But he kind of puts his head down and runs out of defense, though. Yeah, he does. He'll do that. Which it's I'm aggressive. Not, it's which is fine. Which is, give me something. I don't care if he yeah. goes out and gets two yellow cards. I don't care if he, somebody goes out there and punches somebody at this point. I don't care. I just want to see something out of this team. The only guy that goes out there and looks like he's fighting at all is Bedoya, and he's just his skill set is not such that he can carry a whole team. No. We've seen enough of that. He can do a lot of things. He'll hustle. He'll run. You know, he can get into the box. He's a good good guy to be a last man into the box to, you know, get a header like he got. I mean, work to, uh, you know, do something, you know, do something like that. That's fine. But he's not a, you know, he's not a game changer. He's not a guy that's going to throw a team on his back and, you know, say, come on me. I'm, you know, go Nick Golan and assist or do something like that. He's just, that's not who he is. Well, and I, I've said this for a year now. And it's it's the problem with spending DP money on eights and yeah. sixes. Yeah, I mean, if you don't spend DP money on nines and tens, it's not worth spending it on eights and sixes. No, because you and, could and defenders. You can find an eight and a six. Yeah, somewhere you can find, you know, a good, hardworking, not you know, midfielder guy. Right. I mean, to, you know, to, and, to and, go and out you, there. And if you look at the last. Four years of Union eights. It's mm-hmm. been either Bedoya or Vincent Nagara. I don't. I think there's a pretty clear argument that Vincent Nagara was more valuable to the Philadelphia Union than Bedoya has been. I I was thinking about this the other day. This system that they run worked when they had Vincent and Trinkio Barnetta. Right. That's like what made eight and ten. That's what made this system work. And Bedoya is not Vincent. Bedoya has has his skill set. He's a hustler. He's a hard worker. He's a good man. To, like I said, get last man of the box. You know, he's good, pretty good vocal leader. All those things. But Vincent was just made the team overall better because he was always he was at the point of every triangle. He was an outlet on every pass. He had such great vision of the field that he could get it the ball to the people that needed it. And he, you know, he wasn't really a goal scorer in France. But he nicked goals here. He he nicked some pretty opportunistic, pretty big goals here in, in MLS. 
just because you know the level and defense has changed a little bit, and he was able to to be a little better goal scorer. He wasn't a great goal scorer, but he was a better goal scorer here in MLS than I think he ever was in France. Um, and those two guys made this system work. And when those two guys went away, the system kind of fell apart. No matter who you put in that eight and the ten role, and it hasn't worked since. So does that mean they need a tactical rethink? Probably. I know, I know. Tactical rethink. Uh, Who do you you think you are? But I don't know what works. I I just want to know what's going to work with this team, with this set of 18, 22 players. I I don't know. I don't don't know if anybody knows. I'd like to believe that the the union front office Mm -hmm. would try something different if they thought it would work. Um, You would think. And Columbus is not going to be a pushover. Columbus is no... Yeah, you know, I not not a lot of people talking about him, but I I rate Greg Berhalter pretty high as a coach. Yeah, I think I think he has the ability to uh, to be dynamic with his his team. That he he can he can shuffle his players, he can shuffle his formation, and 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 try different things against different opponents. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I rate him in that way too. Yeah, and I thought they came in here and they kind of played a chess match with the union and. Walked out of here with a point. Well, I mean, you, you talk about come in and mucking it up and playing a little ugly soccer. That's what Columbus did when they came here. That's what they, they did. They came and, on a cold day in March, mm-hmm. and they said that we don't think the Philadelphia Union can score if we sit deep and try to hit them on the counter, and it worked. I think they knew. Yeah, and I, I think every move they made was built to kind of neutralize the Union and to just yeah. every, every— I mean, we know. talked about this after that game is that you know, Columbus is famous for having attacking fullbacks. And out of respect for David Akam, you know, they, they held Harrison awful back. Yeah. They they didn't have him bombing up that right side like they normally would. And it made David Akam completely useless in that game. Exactly. Uh, yeah. It, it, so I, I mean I'm I'm kind of uh, lost at this point. Yeah, I, I mean, I just, you know, we actually recorded this last season. We did. Yeah, this and is, I'm surprised. And it's holding up well. We just added well. a few things out, and uh, <laughs> we changed some uh, names. But let's talk about something positive real quick that happened today or Tuesday, whenever you're listening to this. Yeah, that is the return that I, st- that I still managed to talk about in a negative way before we came on the air. But I'll get to that. Which part was that? Are we talking about the two? Oh yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, okay. Yeah. Um. Oh right. Well, we'll yeah. get to that point too. <laughs> Sorry, but um. I'm just one big rain cloud over you here. You really are, but that's I fine. Yeah, that's who I am. So Sebastian Latou signs a one-day contract with yeah. Philadelphia Union to retire. Maybe they should have offered him a year, and maybe <sighs> he could play for Sapong this weekend. Yeah, I mean, why not? Um, but it's great. It's great. Sebastian Latou should absolutely retire a member of the Philadelphia Union. There has never been a player like him in Philadelphia Union history. No, there, there hasn't. And I thought Dan Walsh summed it up really well in the Philly Soccer page today. If you want to go read something about it, that is probably smarter than the two of us talking about it. <laughs> I always kind of liken it back the early, and I, I think it's still there to a point. And when MLS and the union and everything get more and more successful, that's going to go away, which is a shame. But just the stories I used to hear guys that lived like in North Philly when they were, you know, like back in the 50s and the 60s, and you look out your window and you can see Johnny Callison walking to the game to, to, to Connie Mack Stadium, you know, and guys who grew up in Brooklyn, they used to see, you know, the other one you can see like Gil Hodges and. Jackie Robinson walking walking to Abbott's Field. There's such an element of that still, I think, with MLS. 
that a lot of these guys are very much on ground level in in a lot of ways. And Latou was very much that. Absolutely. And he he was the guy that just embraced and it he wasn't you know, I think people knew about him a little bit, thought he was a talented guy, he was probably a good pickup for the union. It wasn't like you know, he's the savior. He's going to be the guy. It just kind of just happened, yeah. like organically. Scored that hat trick at the link in the first game, mm-hmm. and and he just really just embraced that. A little bitter about missing that first goal, Joe Biden. <laughs> yeah, I was, sorry. I just got shot by a, a Secret Service guy because I didn't take my cell phone out. <laughs> he he was not happy with me, yeah, and man. I was like, dude, I am so sorry. I, I remember being I remember being outside the stadium with. Uh, with Adam can and yeah. like hearing the roar of the goal and I was like, damn. Yeah. So, <laughs> but anyway, and he just really, he really embraced that role. And he, he, did. Would, he would sign every autograph, take pictures with kids, with moms and dads and you know, whomever was there. And he did it on and off the field and did it in such a way and with such like a style and such a uniqueness. It's, it's, you know, yeah, you're right. There hasn't been anybody like that. I, I think there's been people here that the union wanted to be like that. I think they wanted Maurice to do to kind of fill that role. And it, one thing or another never really yeah, happened. Not that guy. And Bedoya a little bit too, but he's. I, just, I mean, I think a lot I, of people. I'm not, like, I'm not criticizing those guys' personalities, yeah. but they don't have that same kind of personality. Right. And, you know, I, I think Bedoya kind of wants to embrace that in a way, but it's just, you know, it's just he's not the same guy and it's not going to be the same. And you just. And you know, I was just looking back at videos and look at those, you know, those first couple of years with those teams with, you know, with Califf and, and, and Latou and, you know, just all that and, and Torres and Mondragon. And- one, of the, one of the things that, <laughs> that Latou always did that I don't think I've seen another union player do since is that when the union were searching for a winner or when the union were, were searching for a game tying goal and they, they had that late corner kick mm-hmm. and he used to he used to take the, the set pieces right. for, for better or worse. Uh, but yeah, he used yeah. to pump up the crowd. Yeah. You know, Nobody he used to that. he used to ask for the cheers, yeah. and it worked yeah. because he was he was a guy that could command it. Right. You know, I, I don't think if David Akam and the form that he's in went over to the sideline and did that now no, that he could get the same well. reaction. Go well. um, but you know, he was a guy that left it all out there. He was a guy that wanted the fans to be loud and passionate. And there's 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 no one there's no one to fill that that void right now. It really isn't. Um, I don't I don't see. Josh Kell running over to the sideline to take a corner kick. No. Maybe maybe Harris. I mean, Harris a little bit. I, I think he's got that kind of quirkiness to him. Yeah. And he, he could be, it, it's, you know, it was just. Latou has that blind passion. Though, yeah, that I it's think just is, that perfect storm. It was the guy, he had that attitude. He banged in goals. And he was, you know, it was just everything. He had the accent. And it was just like, it was just instantaneous yeah. with his team. And that's tough to do. It's t- tough to recreate. And again, all due respect to the guys we've mentioned, it's just so tough to recreate that and tough to kind of have. And that's what makes it so special and him coming back and him going to Ring of Honor and him having a role with the team, which I'm happy about, which I yeah, think he should, ha- he should have some kind of role with absolutely. the team. I mean, whatever they figure out. Anything. And, any, you know, yeah. and... You know, even it, even if he's the guy that runs out when the union have a corner kick and pumps up the crowd, like <laughs> something, fine, yeah, fine. It, it, it's Good just role. it's just such a perfect, and you know, and he he wasn't a perfect player. He had his flaws, and you know, he was he took corners, was the best corner taker all the no. time, and <laughs> but he, you know, he was just he always kind of took him and things like that. But uh, you know, it, it's just something that they're just missing, yeah, and 
they're missing it and they're playing poorly and and just him coming back just reminds you how you know how hopeful we all were in the yeah. first two three years and how like the, everything was kind of pointing upward and we thought you know we got an MLS team and you know soccer's here and we got this guy and you know and, and it's, it's not been the same since then and here we are today <laughs> and and while we're, we're being a little bit of a downer I, I want to re-up what I said on Twitter too it's just like you could get Jay Sugarman down here for this this is the first player you're inducting into your, your ring of honor in the stadium. He's basically the only player that you've ever had that you could call the face of the franchise. You can't get the you're, owner? You're Jay Sugarman, and I don't know exactly what he's worth. He's worth a lot more than I am. Um, if you have that stature, you can say to whatever you're doing, I got to go do this in Philly for I got to do hours. this for a couple of hours in Philly. He's got the helicopter. I mean, we know that. You right. could zip down here if he needs to. Because the team that I own is doing something special, and I need to be there. I need to show my face. And but that I think, and this is what I said on Twitter today is that I think this encapsulates what Jay Sugarman is to the Philadelphia Union, which is kind of an absentee owner. Yeah, and, that pencils in a union game here and there, and that's his involvement. And and I don't, I don't know if that's true or not, but perception's reality, and that is certainly the perception amongst the fans. I mean, I I've been at it. Almost every home game for five years in the press box. Yeah. I don't see Jay Sugarman there. I see him occasionally. I've seen him kind of. I think he was at the, the, was at the, the home opener. Yeah, that was the last and, time I remember seeing him. And yeah, you know, in this city, has always kind of had a. This is it's a tough town, and we have a tough relationship with our superstars. You know, ask Mike Schmidt, <laughs> and we certainly have a tough relationship with our owners. You know. You know, not everybody, you know, before February 4th of this year, not everybody loved Jeffrey Lurie. <laughs> now the man is a saint. Yeah. But some people had issues with Jeff Lurie. Yeah. You know, Ed Snyder, he was another story. I think a lot of people, I mean, he got towards the end, I think people realized he needed to really go some control, but people loved Ed Snyder. But, you know, go back to the Sixers or Harold Katz and yeah. all, all, all that stuff. So it's always been kind of a weird relationship, but to just not show you you know to percent to put out a perception that you don't care about your team that's that's tough and and fans pick up on that and it's and it's been a thing that i think fans have picked up on for i mean for a while but in a much clearer fashion in the last two seasons yeah um the fact that we had to write an open letter to jay sugarman on the philly soccer page last year i thought that that spoke volumes to what people thought of jay sugarman yeah. the fact that he did write back to us i thought was amazing and, and a positive step that I don't think that there's been another positive step after I that. think there's I think he cares about the team I just think there might be a disconnect on what to do to show you care about the team yeah you know because he's not he doesn't live in Philly I mean all those other owners I mentioned they all lived in the area he lives up in New York but you know Jeffrey Laurie is very much part of the community the Flyers have always been very much part of the community. Um, Philly's ownership, even though it, it's kind of a lot of faceless investors, has always been kind of one or two people that have been out there and up front, for better or worse. But you know, but it's a feeling that they're part of the community. You just don't feel that with Jay Sugarman that he's part of the community. He's part of Philly, and that goes a very long way in Philadelphia. Again. It does. It, it, it's it's kind of good and bad with how parochial Philadelphia sports can be, but 
you know, the, and the good is people are loyal to you, but the bad is that people are kind of live and die with you. And when they die with you, it's really tough. But you put Jay Sugarman's not even part of that, ta- that, that tapestry. Right. And I think that that's a huge problem. And that, that's a big issue. And I think, uh, before we went on, we're talking about a guy like Merrick Paulson, who you know, you know it's, it's kind of a jerk. He's kind of a jerk. I don't know if I'd want to like sit on a long next to him on a long bus trip, but my God, the guy bleeds ble- Portland bleeds for his badge, man. Yeah, he, he, he he feels like his team's being slighted. He's like kind of like a Mark Cuban type, but he feels yeah. like he's being slighted. He's going to say give me those guys. He's going to say guys. It. He's probably going to say the wrong thing a lot of the times. Yeah, but. He cares, man. Yeah. He's his, he's spilling his guts out there for his team. Yeah, and and we would take that. In and Philadelphia. if Jay Sugarman did like half of that, people would like you know love him or at least respond to him. Apathy's the worst thing, and that I think that's you know love or hate, fine, but apathy is the worst, and I think that's what people feel towards Jason, uh, Jason, Jay Sugarman. Yep, apathy. Yep. So, all right, there we are. Uh, quick prediction. Uh, uh, two nil, two nil. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> For Montreal, those, those are not Columbus. those are those are not union wins, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Just to clarify. All right. So I guess we'll wrap it up uh, on that. And, I'm gonna uh, go drink. Right. So uh, we'll catch everybody next week.